All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open the word of God this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so grateful that we have this opportunity in a free country to study your word, that we have fairly accurate translations of your word before us. We have our own copies, in many cases, many copies. We have more available to us for our spiritual sustenance than we can ever imagine, and more than any generation in the history of this church age. And yet, Father, so often we are uh, we take this for granted. We do not utilize it. We do not spend our time studying it. And yet, again and again, the Scriptures talk about the fact that we are to meditate upon your Word day and night. We are to focus on your Word. We're to study it. We're to learn it. We're to read it. And, Father, yet we get so easily distracted by our own sins, and we get easily distracted by uh, the details of life. Father, we need to be challenged to focus our attention upon your Word and make it a priority. Father, as we study today, we pray that we might be encouraged and strengthened in our day-to-day walk and that your word will become more clearly um, powerful for us and that we might come to understand how all of the pieces of your word clearly fit together, how the Old Testament is the foundation to understand the New Testament and how the New Testament is the fulfillment of that which was laid down in the Old. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 118. Today we'll probably just get down to verse 21. This is a 29-verse psalm. It takes some time to go through this. And starting in verse 22 is where we really see the verses that are quoted, that are cited uh, in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 begins the last week of our Lord in his uh, non-resurrected humanity leading up to the cross. It's a very significant week, and there are many things that happen during that particular week. And so we're taking our time to go through this. It may be several months. The chronology of the period is enough to turn, uh, make any bowl of spaghetti look like it's one straight line. It is extremely difficult uh, to put together all of the details of the chronology, and I don't know any three people who agree. So um, if you think you know it, you haven't studied it enough. So we will take some time and go through some of that uh, when we get there. But what we see in chapter 21 is a basic structure orienting on the presentation of Jesus as the king of Israel to uh, the population that is in, in Jerusalem. It is the beginning of the week of, of uh, Pesach. It's just two or three days before Passover begins. 
And because of that, there are enormous crowds that are beginning to arrive in Jerusalem, for it is one of three feast days that are mandated by the Torah, by the law, for all Jewish males to come and be present at the temple in Jerusalem. So this is a crucial time, and the Lord is presented as the king, and we see in verses uh, 1 through 17 of chapter 21 in Matthew, the formal presentation of the king. And as we look at this, we can break it down into some subsections. In verses 1 through 7, we see how the Lord is preparing the circumstances for his presentation. He sends out the disciples to find the foal of a colt of a donkey, and this is prepared for him to ride into Jerusalem. In verses 8 through 11, we see the description of his entry into Jerusalem. And as he does so, the crowds sing from Psalm 118, 24 to 26. They sing Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that is a quote from uh, uh, this psalm, and we need to understand why are they why are they singing this? What is the significance of this? As a result of their celebration, the, uh, the crowds ask who this Jesus is. Why are they celebrating? And in verses 12 through 16 of Matthew 21, he begins to demonstrate his, his uh, messianic credentials by cleansing the te- temple, healing the blind and the lame. And this sets off a negative reaction among the scribes and the chief priests. And then in verses 17 through 2246, the Lord begins to demonstrate his messianic credentials. So here we have just a brief outline uh, here on the screen. And this confrontation between Jesus as the Messiah and the religious leaders then develops into a, a condemnation by Jesus of the religious leaders. They reject him as the Messiah, and he then rejects the nation. This will culminate in a statement at the end of chapter 23 where he says that he he will be leaving, but he will not return until people say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So as we look at this, we see that, that Psalm 118 is a crucial background text for understanding this entire period from the entry into Jerusalem to the last night when he celebrates the Seder, the Passover meal with his disciples before he leaves to go out. And let me point out uh, the background on this. Psalm 118.26 is quoted and sung by the crowds as they welcome Jesus uh, in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And they sing that, and it's quoted in Matthew 21, 9, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then, near the end of Matthew 21, in verse 42, Psalm uh, 118 is again quoted by Jesus as he denounces the religious leaders in Matthew 21, 42. And he says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief, uh, become the chief cornerstone, This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Then he again quotes from Psalm 118 in Matthew 23:39. He quotes from Psalm 118:26, and this is when he announces that he will not return until they say, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." That is probably on Tuesday or Wednesday, and then on probably depending on whether you hold to a Friday crucifixion or Thursday crucifixion. The night before he goes to the cross as he celebrates the Lord's table or the, the Seder meal and he reinstitutes it as the, as the Lord's table, when they conclude the Lord's table, they will sing from uh, Psalm 117 and 118 so that they are singing, as I pointed out last time, uh, bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And then they walk out and they go to Gethsemane where Jesus will be arrested and then he will be taken and tried and then he will become the ultimate Passover sacrifice for our sins. So these events, this psalm, not only brackets the events of the last week, but it is quoted several times in between. So this is significant. Now, last time we did a basic introduction to Psalm 118 and why it's important. Because when you come to any passage in the Old Testament that quotes Old Testament passages, we need to go back and understand why it is that this passage is being quoted. Why is it that they are singing this? What is that significance, and why does Matthew think it's important for us to know that? So in terms of a little review, I'm going to make a, remind you of a couple of things we concluded last week. First of all, Psalm 118 is the last of a set of psalms that are referred to as the Hallel Psalms. Hallel is the Hebrew verb for praise. Hallelujah, that you at the end is a second person plural ending indicating it's a command, y'all praise. And then when you have an object to that and you're saying praise God, that's hallelujah. We don't praise God, as I pointed out last time, by saying praise God. We don't praise God by saying hallelujah, because those are basically commands to praise God. If you want to learn how to praise God, then you study uh, the Hallel Psalms, these Psalms, Psalm 113 to 118. You study other praise, thanksgiving Psalms in the Scripture, and what you learn is that the way to praise God is to describe what God has done for you, how God has delivered you and provided for you, and you spell out the details and make it specific. You don't just make these sort of generic statements. Sadly, we live in a world today where we have become so superficial that we, uh, that, that we dumb down the scriptures and we dumb down our worship so it basically doesn't become very, very significant or relevant. Second point is that in the original context, this is a psalm that would have been sung by a procession of people being led to worship by a political or a religious leader as they ascended the Temple Mount. It is um, written to celebrate God's deliverance of Israel from a period of severe divine chastening, as the New King James translates it, or a time of severe divine discipline which threatened the very existence of the nation. 
So even though it doesn't specify exactly what the situation is, there's only two or three times in the Old Testament where Israel's uh, very existence is at stake. This probably relates to the fact that this is a post-exilic psalm and is referring to their deliverance from the exile and restoration to the land of Israel. The third thing that we saw is that this is a communal thanksgiving song. This is a song that is not sung by an individual about an uh, individual deliverance by God, but the individual as the leader of the nation is talking about himself with the first person singular I or me, but he is a representative of the nation so that he is not talking about God's work in his life as an individual, but God's work in delivering the nation as a whole from the threat of death and total destruction. It is a thanksgiving psalm, and there are five basic elements that you find in any thanksgiving psalm. The first is that there is a proclamation or a call to praise God or to give thanks to God. Some translations, indeed, will translate the opening line, give thanks to the Lord, as give praise to the Lord, because uh, in the view of some, giving thanks to the Lord, because it's a form, thanks is a form of praise, that is how they translate it. The uh, 1986 version of the Tanakh, the Jewish translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, translates it that way. Literally, the word is chodu, which means to give thanks. So it's a thanksgiving psalm. That's a class of declarative praise. And the first four verses uh, call people to praise God. Then there's an introductory summary. We find that in verses 5 through 7. And this summarizes a little bit about the circumstances and situation out of which this praise will come. Then there's a report of the deliverance, how God answered the prayer, how God delivered the people. This uh, description is found in verses 10 through 18. Then there's often a vow of praise or a renewed vow of praise or call to praise, and we find that in verses 19 through 28. And then there is often a form of praise or instruction that comes out of what the psalmist has learned from God's deliverance. It is always part of instruction. We often talk about the the law when we talk about the Old Testament. We talk about the first five books of Moses, often referred to as Torah. And one of the meanings of Torah is, of course, law, and it describes the law of Moses. But uh, another and significant meaning to the word Torah is simply instruction, And so you always have something related to instruction or application uh, in these praise psalms. It's not just about praising God, but there's also a statement of what the psalmist has learned in this circumstance and situation as God has provided deliverance. So these are the elements that we find in any Thanksgiving psalm, and we find all of these elements in this particular psalm. A fourth thing we observed was that we don't know who wrote it. We're not absolutely certain as the circumstances. We have to understand that from what is said within the text, and I'll make that clear as we go through. We don't know who wrote it, 
but it is obviously written by someone who is a political or religious leader of Israelites. Since it is after the exile, this could be Zerubbabel, who is the uh, political leader of of uh, Israel, of Judah, and is the political heir of David, but he is not a a king at that point. They do not have a king when they return from uh, the exile in Babylon. They only had an appointed governor. Yet it seems to be a political ruler that is representing the people and calling them uh, to praise. And then a fifth thing we saw is that the occasion for the psalm is God's deliverance of the people from a time of severe uh, divine discipline. If you look down in um, in verse 18, says that the Lord has chastened me in the New King James, d- disciplined me severely in the uh, New American Standard, so that this is the circumstance. It's a severe chastening. So only a few things, events in Israel's history reflect a severe chastening that brought about an existential crisis. We'll begin by looking at the call to praise, the call to give thanks to God in verses 1 through 4, which begins in verse 1, oh, give thanks to Yahweh. Whenever we see those uppercase L-O-R-D, we are reminded that this is a translation of the sacred tetragrammaton, the four letters that refer to the name of God in the Hebrew, uh, Y-H-W-H, usually pronounced Yahweh, mistranslated many centuries ago as Jehovah. The way it's written in Hebrew, there are no vowels. So all you have is a Y-H-W-H. The Y is uh, often uh, transliterated into English as a J, so that's where you get the J. Uh, the W is, uh, is, is, or the V is usually translated as a V. In fact, in Hebrew, the, the W is often pronounced as a V. And so that's where you get the J and the V, the J H V H. And in the Hebrew text, in, uh, Jews do not read the name of God. So whenever they see the name of God, Yahweh, they either say Hashem, the name, or the vowel points that were put into the text later on are the vowels in Hebrew for the word Adonai. And they would that was to remind them to read Adonai rather than to say Yahweh. And so in the late Middle Ages, a, um, uh, a monk uh, who was translating the text translated it wrongly or transliterated it wrongly as J-E-V-O-H-A, adding the vowels. So the vowels come from one word, and the consonants come from another word. So Jehovah is not the name of God. It's not even a biblical word. It was something that was just uh, invented by mistake uh, by a, a monk in the Middle Ages. So, but the significance of this word is that it is always associated with God's covenant promises to Israel, his covenant obligations to Israel. So when we read this, in the background, there's always a focus on God's covenant faithfulness to Israel. And so the call to worship is to give thanks to the Lord. Now, 
we read, as you look at these four verses, there's a statement in the first stanza of each verse followed by the same line. Each verse has as the second stanza, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, these verses were probably sung antiphonally by the temple choir so that one part would sing the first line and then the another part of the choir would sing the second line antiphonally. We often see something similar to that in the hymns that we sing in our hymn book. And if you can read music, it's always good. You recognize in the chorus of many of the hymns that we sing that there is a a, an echo line or a descant in the chorus that's sung by the men. And it's really beautiful if the congregation understands the distinction between the, the, the women's part and the men's part. We sing, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, a beautiful echo there between the male voices and the female voices. But you have to understand it. That's why we have a choir to help lead that so that you can, the men can key off of the men's voices in the chorus, and the women can key off of the women's uh, uh, part in the chorus. And there's a number of different uh, hymns that are that way, and we need to work on that. Sadly, or unfortunately, I think that in some of the uh, hymns, as they've been rewritten a little bit or re-edited a little bit, um, they, the parts have changed a little bit. So there's a tra- for many of us who learn the more traditional breakdown, what happens is you see in a, a, a little more, not, it's not contemporary, what's happened is that in order to avoid copyright issues, somebody re- rewrites the descant a little bit, and now it's a new edition, and they don't have to deal with copyright issues. So uh, it's better to have a consistent, and I like a lot of the older vocalizations better anyway, so um, we need to work on that and getting that a little more consistent. But our takeaway from this is that this psalm, as a declarative praise psalm, is a psalm that relates to giving thanks for God's deliverance in a specific historical space-time situation. It's not for just any general act of God or generic uh, deliverance, but for something that happened specifically in, uh, the, on behalf of the people. So it's looking back as a historical psalm. It's looking back to this specific incident, but that specific incident has certain uh, aspects to it that are used in the New Testament because they are a, a picture or a type of something that is going to happen in the future. We see an example of this from Matthew chapter 2, where Hosea 11.1 is quoted. In Hosea 11.1, we read, When Israel was a child, I loved him. God is the speaker. I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This is a verse that is referring to a specific historical event. If you look at the whole context of Hosea 11, it's talking about a historical situation that occurred in 1446 B.C. when God delivered or rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And he called them out as his firstborn son. Matthew quotes that as a type, that it is a picture or a foreshadowing of something that would happen in the life of the Messiah. 
And so he quotes that and says uh, that this was fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea 11.1 isn't a prophecy, but it has a, 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 it's a picture of something that will happen in the future and is applied to the life of Christ. So we have the same kind of thing here. Psalm 118 is talking about a historical event, a historical circumstance, but there are things about that that are then taken as a picture of something that will happen in terms of a future deliverance provided by the Messiah. So this is a a psalm that is a messianic psalm and has uh, much Uh, significance for the life of the Messiah. Some key things that we need to understand in this psalm as we go through it is that in Psalm 118, 11 to 13, that helps with a historical understanding there that that this is a time of of, uh, discipline, a time of, uh, of existential crisis in the life of Israel. Then when we get down to uh, verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected, this is quoted numerous times uh, in the New Testament and is uh, a reference ultimately is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we get to another verse, uh, verse 24, a verse that sadly is taken out of context and uh, I, I think it's just abused a lot. It's used in a contemporary chorus. Uh, to refer to any day that's a nice, bright, sunny day and has absolutely nothing to do with that. It refers in the context to a historical event that is a type of the future return of Christ to establish his kingdom. Uh, it's interesting when I'm in a crowd like I was when I was in Israel last last week uh, with a group of, uh, of of Christian leaders at this event at Yad Vashem. One day somebody jumped up and led the whole bus, and this is the day that the Lord has made. As I glanced around, I knew there were six pastors on the bus who were squared away biblically. They didn't open their mouths. Everybody else sang it. But I noticed this, that those who understand the text don't sing that song because it's taken out of context and it's not applied correctly. So just a little note there that next time you hear someone sing that, think about what it actually means in the text. We need to be textual people, not, not just jump on something because it sounds good and makes us feel good. And then when we get down to the cry... Uh, that comes, and we'll get to this next week, when they call upon the Lord to save in verse 25, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. The Hebrew word there is hoshianu, which is a, again, it is a imperative of request, hoshianu, that comes over into the Greek as hosanna, and it means it is a cry for God to save and deliver the people. And so, of course, this is why it is sung when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. Psalm 118.1 introduces the call to worship, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. This introduces the important idea that God is good. He is intrinsically good. This is related to his righteousness 
And because God is the creator God set over against all of creation, he is good in a way that nothing else is good. He is absolute righteousness. And therefore, all that he does is righteous, even when he disciplines us individually, even when he disciplined Israel and had the nation uh, destroyed by the armies of uh, the Babylonians, had the temple destroyed, all of that was as a result of his justice and his righteousness. He is a good God, and he is faithful to his covenant. For in Leviticus 26 and in Deuteronomy 28, God spelled out the fact that if Israel rejected him, went into idolatry, went into disobedience, then whenever they did that, God would take them through various stages or cycles of judgment and discipline, in the harshest of which The fifth cycle of discipline would mean that God would remove the people from the land, that because of their irresponsibility, because of their disobedience, because of their failure to obey him, they would no longer have the right to the land that God had given them, and God would bring them out of the nation and take them through a time of horrific chastening. This occurred Uh, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar invaded Israel twice before in 605 and 597, and then the third time in 586, he destroyed the temple, and uh, hundreds of thousands of Jews were slaughtered and killed, and their uh, children, those who survived, were taken off as slaves to, to Babylon. But after God brought them back, They recognized his faithfulness, his mercy. The word translated mercy here, uh, before I jump ahead here, the word translated mercy means his faithful covenant, his faithful love uh, for his people. We see this echoed in other psalms. In Psalm 106.1, praise the Lord, which is hallelujah. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, the same that we have in Psalm 118.1. For he is good. Why do we give thanks to to God? Because he is good intrinsically. For his mercy endures forever. Psalm 136.1 says, uh, Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. The title changes in Psalm 136.2, Give thanks to the God of gods. In Psalm 136.3, it changes to give thanks to the Lord of lords. In Psalm 136.26, it's give thanks to the God of heaven. The focus in all of these is to give us a full view of the identity of, of the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because his mercy, his chesed, this is the Hebrew word. It is often translated covenant, or excuse me, loving kindness, sometimes mercy. But the emphasis is on his loyal love. He is loyal to his covenant with Israel, and he is going to fulfill that which he has promised, to bless them when they are obedient and to bring discipline or judgment on them because he is disobedient. Now, sometimes when you reduce not really you you reduce love or explain love in terms of faithfulness to a covenant people think well that's not really loving you're just you're just being faithful to a contract okay now there's a number of people here who are married when you get married you stand before a pastor or a a judge or a magistrate or perhaps someone else who's authorized to conduct a marriage service and what happens you pledge to one another uh, 
that you are going to fulfill the obligations of this covenant that you are entering into in terms of your love for one another and in terms of your marriage. That is the foundation of your relationship from that point on is that you have entered into a contract with your spouse and you have pledged that on the basis of that contract, you are going to love one another and be true to one another for the remainder of your lives. That doesn't sound real romantic, does it? But that's the essence of a successful marriage, is being faithful to that contract to love one another in sickness, in health, in good times, bad times, prosperity, adversity, of whatever the situation may be, because the love is not based on something that is ephemeral or something that changes, but it is based on something that is grounded in the eternal character of God, that is a covenant. So that is the kind of love that God has for Israel. It's the same kind of love that is to characterize a marriage. Now, as he calls upon the nation to give thanks to the Lord, he then breaks this down into three different groups within Israel. First of all, he talks about the whole nation. Let Israel say, his mercy endures forever. And then he narrows it to the priesthood. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. And then he narrows it even more to those who fear the Lord. Not all believers fear the Lord. But those who fear the Lord are those who are focused upon living a life that honors and glorifies God. So he narrows it down to those people. So this is the introduction, the call to worship, to let each one, everyone in the nation and each subset call upon the Lord and because his loving kindness is everlasting. The cause for the praise begins to be described in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, I called on the Lord, and I put the name Yah, the shortened form of God, in here because the text doesn't use the full form. It it uses simply uh, the shortened form. And what's interesting is the way that this is stated in the Hebrew to show the emphasis. It doesn't say, I called on the Lord in distress. It says, in distress, I called on the Lord. So the emphasis is on the circumstances, the distress. And the idea of distress, as you see in the Hebrew words that I've put before, the verb, the form in the text is the noun uh, metzar, which is usually translated distress or trouble or adversity. But it's from the verb sarar, which means to bind, to be narrow, to be in distress. Literally, it means I'm in a narrow place. I'm in a tight place. Uh, we say that. I'm in a fix. I'm in a tight place. Everything seems to be closing in around me. That's the idea here. It's used uh, metaphorically. I'm in a very tight place. And what he says is that I cried out to the Lord, and the Lord set me in a wide open place. In other words, he removed all of the adversity, or he lightened the load so that I no longer had the load. Uh, the circumstances might not have changed, but it changed in terms of my response to that adversity because God was taking care of me. So the idea is that we get in a position of, of pr- uh, pressure 
through either external adversity, and in their situation, this was the external adversity caused by the invasion of a foreign army that was going to destroy the nation. They would destroy their livelihood, destroy their homes, destroy all of their hopes and dreams. Whatever was going to happen in the rest of their life was not like anything they had anticipated. They were losing everything, and that external adversity was then converted into the internal pressure of stress. Now, the other thing that happens is we can see external adversity, and when we respond to it out of fear and anxiety and worry, then we can convert our own internal sin into stress in the soul so that we know we are in distress and we're no longer uh, characterizing the Christian life. We're no longer relaxed. We're not trusting God. We're not experiencing the joy that God has for us. There's no stability. There's no happiness because we've converted the external pressure of adversity or the internal pressure of adversity into stress uh, in our soul. And so this is what he is talking about. He called on the name of the Lord. That is the proper response whenever we face external or internal adversity. And the solution is that Yahweh, the Lord, answers us, and only God can set us in a broad place. The circumstances may not change, but we are able to respond to the circumstances with peace. This is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. The night before he went to the cross, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is under incredible pressure. Not externally, there was nothing happening around him externally, but because he knew what was going to happen in the next 24 hours, because he knew that what he would face in terms of the physical torment and torture, because he knew that beyond that he would face incredible pain as the sin of humanity touched and impacted judicially the perfect Lamb of God, the one who was without sin, that he would experience all of that pain and heartache from sin, that he prayed to the Father, let this cup pass from me. And the scripture says that he faced great sorrow and emotional distress. Now, that's not because at that point that he has yielded to the pressure, but that is talking about just the external pressure. But the way he responds is to take it to the Lord in prayer and to trust in him. And so Jesus Christ never lost his peace. He never lost his happiness. He was perfectly happy, perfectly at peace, even though he was facing incredible external and internal, or mostly internal at that point, um, distress. We see this illustrated in a couple of different instances in the Old Testament. In Genesis 32.7, we're told that as Jacob is returning to the land, remember Jacob had cheated his brother out of his inheritance. He had defrauded his brother Esau, and then he Esau was breathing uh, threats, threatened to take his life, and so Jacob, uh, at the advice of his mother, uh, left town and went to live and work for his uncle Laban for uh, uh, at least 14 years. Now he's returning uh, to the land of his parents, and he is fearful because he's just learned from his advanced scouts that, that Esau 
is coming to meet him, and he thinks that Esau is going to kill him, and he is scared to death. And that's what the text says. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. So this kind of pressure on our soul can come from our sin nature when we respond in fear. So there's the external source. There's also an internal source of this kind of adversity. And he is greatly afraid and distressed. We also see this word used in the book of Judges to describe the situation in Israel as they're threatened by external enemies. In Judges 2.15, wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them. Because of their disobedience, they weren't having victory over the Canaanites. The Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them. That takes us back to the Mosaic Law and the promises of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And they were greatly distressed. The external circumstances were putting pressure on their souls. They're not responding in trust to God, and internally they're falling apart and fragmenting. Judges 10.9 talks about the same kind of situation. This is just prior to the judgeship of Jephthah. The people of Ammon, the Ammonites, had crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. This is the northern kingdom. So that Israel was severely distressed. God's discipline on the nation is talked about as this great distress. Now, that's important because what that helps us to understand is the backdrop to to understanding and interpreting Psalm 118 correctly. It is a time of severe divine discipline on the nation. So what we see in this is that adversity, those external circumstances, are the outside pressure of negative circumstances, are the internal pressure of sinful thoughts and emotions on the soul. Stress develops. Like you th- think about a stress test. You 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 take a, you take uh, you take a metal, and you form something, and then you put you test it, you a- uh, evaluate it. Through a stress test, you put external pressure on it, and if there's a weakness internally, then the more pressure that's put, then it, the it will reveal what uh, whatever cracks, whatever impurities there might be in the metal. So the outside pressure of circumstances or the inside pressure of our sinful thoughts and emotions can expose those faults and cracks within our soul as we're relying on self or circumstances rather than God. The only way to avoid converting external adversity into stress in the soul is by using the 10 spiritual skills. I've talked about these many times. First thing we have to do is recover spiritually and confess sin. Then we have to walk by the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.16. We have to trust in God. We'll see that emphasized here in this passage. We have to be oriented to God's grace, that he supplied everything we need in Christ Jesus. We have to be oriented to what the Word of God says. The Word of God describes how we are to face and handle difficult circumstances. Then as we grow and mature, we develop a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We live in light of who we're going to be in eternity and let that impact how we think and respond today. We have developed a personal love for God. We uh, develop an impersonal love for mankind. And by impersonal love, what I mean is not that this is some kind of machine type of love, but that we don't have to have a personal relationship with the person to demonstrate the love of God toward them. 
This is the kind of love we have towards people we don't know, people who are driving like idiots on the freeway, uh, people who park and take up three parking places in the parking lot when everybody else is full, just things like that, that we treat these people that we don't know, that we don't have a personal relationship with. We treat them with kindness and generosity, exhibiting the love of God. And especially the really hard cases, Those are the customer service people we have to deal with. All right, that's impersonal love. We don't know the person personally. Okay, and then occupation with Christ. We focus on who Jesus Christ is, and he is the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12.2. And then plus H is personal happiness, the inner happiness that Christ has given us. Those are the spiritual skills. I've got long series that I've taught and developed those that you can listen to. This is what the backdrop is, and divine judgment on a nation is certainly a source of external adversity. And if you haven't recognized it yet, We've been going through divine judgment in this country since about five or ten years after World War II. It's not going to come because of failures today. What we're experiencing in terms of many of the failures today is divine judgment. Read Romans 1 carefully. Homosexuality and lesbianism are divine judgments. They are not the cause of divine judgments. We are seriously under divine discipline. And instead of letting that destroy your walk with the Lord, your peace, your happiness, your stability, uh, especially in this election year, then you need to learn to relax and trust in the Lord and just let these things go by because they're just circumstances. And for us as believers, circumstances are not our source of stability or happiness or joy. We see the incorrect uh, response to divine discipline and the distress that God brings into our lives for judgment uh, in King Ahaz. Second Chronicles 28.22 says, Now in the time of his distress, that was divine j- discipline on the nation, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. Sometimes divine discipline just causes people to bow the neck and they become more stubborn in their disobedience and things get worse. But the correct response is, for example, illustrated in David in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. This is when he had been living in Ziklag with the Philistines. The people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That is the source. When we're faced with external adversity, we strengthen ourselves with the Lord our God. Another response is in the life of Manasseh. King Manasseh of Judah had a 40-year reign, and he was one of the most evil kings in the southern kingdom. But God brought judgment and discipline in his life, and he turned back to the Lord towards the end of his life. And we read in Second Chronicles 33.12, Now when he, that is Manasseh, was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Now this word for distress is often used for the divine discipline that God would bring upon Israel, especially the fifth cycle of discipline that came to them in 586 B.C., It's described this way in four verses in Deuteronomy 28. 
Let me read these to you. This is what the people went through. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust. See, they're trusting in military skill and military technology, not in the Lord. Until your gates in which you trust will come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, cannibalism, cannibalism for your own children. This is what happened both in 586 and it happened again in AD 70. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. The sensitive and very refined man among you will be hostile toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom, and toward the rest of his children whom he leaves behind, so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children whom he will eat. Picture that a moment. He's cooking and eating his own children, but he's not going to give any to anybody else. Uh, Because he has nothing left in his siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. This is what they went through. Jeremiah 10.18, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will throw out at this time the inhabitants of the land and will distress them, that they may find it so. The point I'm making is that this word for distress is a word that indicates this divine judgment. So all of this is to show that the context for the praise is a time of incredible distress in the nation, a time of existential crisis. It's not about an individual because as we see in the verses 10 through 12, he says, all nations surround me. Four times he says this, all nations surround me. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. They surrounded me like bees in verse 12. Think of the image there of somebody being uh, attacked by a hive of killer bees. Okay, that's the picture. But see, we don't have a group of nations surrounding and attacking an individual. He is representing the nation as a whole, and there's only one time when the nation Israel is surrounded by these nations and is destroyed, and that's in 586 B.C. as they go out under divine uh, discipline and divine judgment. What we can understand for us by way of application is that when we feel hemmed in and surrounded by adversity, The only thing that will give us uh, sustenance and deliver us is when we turn to the Lord. This is uh, what he says in these verses. All nations surrounded me, but in the name or by the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. By the name of the Lord. By name isn't just saying the name of the Lord. It's not some magical incantation. What he is saying is the character of the Lord, the name of something in the Scripture relates to its uh, attributes, its character. It's in the character. It's in the person of the Lord that I will destroy them. Now, notice he says three times that he will destroy them. Verse 10, in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Verse 11, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. And verse 12, for in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Now, this is really interesting. We know from our study of the Old Testament that Israel had quite a a background of military conquest as well as military defeat. Any people who are involved in a lot of military activity have a great vocabulary for military conquest and military defeat, military tactics, and military strategy. 
But the word that we have here that is translated destroy in these verses is not a military word. The word that is translated, I will cut them off, that's the New American Standard, is closer to an accurate translation, but again, it's not a military term. In fact, the term that is used here is the term uh, moil. I'm going to skip ahead. Here we go to, here we go. Uh, to, is this term mule is the verb, and it means to circumcise. So what he says is, all nations surrounded me, but I will circumcise them. Now, there's a couple of situations in Israel's history where there was a mass circumcision. One occurred in Shechem with uh, uh, a couple of uh, Jacob's sons with uh, uh, Levi and Simeon. Another time, Samson went out to, and circumcised a bunch of uh, Philistines. David did that also, but it wasn't really a, a, a way of achieving military victory. So we have to understand what he means here, that he's surrounded by this adversity, but the way that God delivers them is through uh, circumcision. I will circumcise them. How is that accomplished? Deuteronomy 36 shows us that Circumcision was not only used to describe physical circumcision, but it's also used to describe spiritual circumcision. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. It is a spiritual circumcision, and the idiom refers to bringing about a change of mind or a change of thinking. And this is exactly what happened historically. For when Israel was taken out under captivity, it was through the Babylonians. When the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians, the Persians had a change of mind. Through Cyrus, they decided to not only restore various conquered peoples to their historic homelands, but when Cyrus gave his decree for the Jews to return to their land, he not only paid for them to go home, he paid for the rebuilding of the temple and gave them money for the rebuilding of the city. So this is the idea of a change of mind. So what the writer is saying here is that God uh, not only restored us to the land, but he provided everything that we would need in order to go back. Now what we find in the verses in between... Verses eight and uh, uh, six through eight, or six through nine, we see the focal point. The Lord is on my side; I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me. Literally, in the uh, Hebrew here, is the Lord to me. That's how, what it reads literally, and it means the Lord's mind. The Lord's on my side. Uh, if the Lord, uh, you know, if it's you plus one and that's the Lord, then you can conquer anything. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. God is going to provide justice no matter what happens. And so the Lord here is called uh, the helper, the Aetzer. In Genesis chapter 2, God said it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. Feminism says that demeans women. That makes women second-class citizens. Women, that demeans women by reducing them to the role of an assistant and a helper for the husband. The only problem with that is, is that aside from the wife, the only other 
individual in the Bible that is described as an Atzer is God. So if the woman is demeaned by being called an Atzer, then God would be demeaned by being called an Atzer. But again and again in the Scripture, God is our helper. He is the one who provides for us and strengthens us, and he is the one who helps us. That doesn't demean women by calling them a helper or an assistant. It elevates them to an exceptional and specific and important role that should not ever be demeaned or ridiculed by placing them on the level of some sort of slave. This isn't the word for slave. This is a word for a special, divinely appointed assistant. Verses 8 and 9, we have the focal point of our, the resolution. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Too often today in this political environment, people are disappointed because they think that the solution is in a political party or an individual. But Scripture says that we never put our trust in man. And we find this here in Psalm 118. We don't put our confidence in man. It's not in the Republican Party. It's not in the Democrat Party. Uh, it's not in any specific individual. They will always fail us. The only hope is in God. The word translated trust is a word that means to seek protection, to seek refuge. It's better to find our refuge and our protection and security in the Lord than to put confidence in any a prince, person, or political party. This is echoed in Psalm fifty-six, eleven. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? This is the lesson that's learned from the, from the exile, is that Israel cannot put their trust in idols. They cannot put their trust in men. They cannot trust their, their put their trust in princes. They will always fail. The lesson is the only hope in times of difficulty, in times of distress, is to trust in the Lord. And the confidence that comes out of this psalm, where we'll end this morning, is that our only hope is in the Lord. He is the one who will sustain us no matter what happens. Because the psalmist that writes this was born in captivity. He was born in Babylon. The circumstances of their uh, defeat, the circumstances of their captivity, the circumstances of losing everything were not changed by God. What he learned was that even in the midst of the horrors of the divine judgment, and trust me, things may get much, much worse in this country, that no matter how bad it might get, God's going to sustain us. God's going to provide for us, and God is going to take care of us. It's better to trust in him and take refuge in him than to trust in anything else with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon how you provide for us and care for us, that you are faithful uh, to us because of what you have promised in the Scripture. Your love for us is based upon what Christ did for us on the cross just as your love in the Old Testament toward Israel was on the basis of the covenant that you made with them through Moses. And, Father, we know that we are to trust you and not to trust in the circumstances, the situations of our lives, not to trust in political parties or princes or promises, 
but we are to trust in you, and that no matter what circumstances may be, no matter what adversity may come in our direction, we know that you will sustain us and you will provide for us. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Christ as Savior, who's never come to understand that they're born a sinner under condemnation, that the only hope for salvation, the only hope for eternal life, is Jesus Christ, because he paid the penalty for sins. And that Scripture says the way that we secure salvation is not through our works, not through our efforts. It is through a trust in Jesus Christ, faith alone. Over 85 times in the Gospel of John, the sole and only condition for salvation is trust in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul said, and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you will challenge anyone who's never trusted in Christ with their need to do so. And we pray that for those of us who have trusted Christ, that we might not forget that trust is the modus operandi of the Christian life and that we must continue to trust in you, take refuge in you, not in our circumstances, not in political leaders, not in any human or created factor, but only in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.